Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series in the prophets, and specifically in the book of Daniel. And here, the team will be having a discussion of Daniel chapter 1, and they'll give some pastoral applications along the way. We are right now in the middle of a short series on the tabernacle with Alistair Roberts over on our YouTube channel. So take a look at the link in our show notes, and we'd love for you to become a subscriber and follow us along over there on YouTube. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Daniel chapter 1. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes is, as usual, behind the scenes recording. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Uh, We have just begun a series of podcasts on the book of Daniel. This is part of a larger series that we're doing on prophetic books. Started a while ago with a a discussion of prophecy in general, and then uh, looked briefly for a few weeks at the book of Jonah. And uh, last week, we started with uh, the book of Daniel, and did a kind of overview and discuss some of the issues that uh, arise in the book of Daniel. This week, we're going to be looking at chapter one of the book of Daniel that kicks things off. Off. This is a part of the uh, the Hebrew section of Daniel. As we talked about last time, Daniel is kind of has two Hebrew sections at the beginning and end. Chapter one through chapter two, verse three, is in Hebrew. And then chapters 8 through 12 are in Hebrew, and that nestled within that are several chapters that are given in Aramaic. We talked about the, the reasons for that linguistic variation last time. But this, uh, this is the Hebrew introduction, and it's talking about the, initially talking about the Hebrews, the Jews, going into exile in Babylon, being taken in the initial deportation during the reign of Jehoiakim from uh, Jerusalem and into Babylon. Just as an overview of chapter one, this is primarily about the uh, the uh, test of uh, Daniel and his three friends, the test of food that they undergo at the beginning of their uh, education in the literatures and uh, the languages of Babylon. That story is a, set out in a kind of chiasm. It begins with a reference to the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. Uh, so you have a, a beginning of Daniel's career. Uh, that is marked there, and then at the end of the end of the uh, chapter in verse twenty-one, you have an an inclusio, a frame around that, a reference to the first year of Cyrus the king, uh, which is the end of uh, Daniel's career, or at least the the toward the toward the end of Daniel's career, uh, when the Persians take over Babylon, and Daniel again arises to become an advisor to now to the Persian king. So you have the frame of the chapter is those. References to these two kings' reigns, one a, one a Jewish king, one a, a king of Judah, rather, and the other a Gentile king, a Persian king. And given that frame, uh, Daniel's, Daniel's career becomes a kind of, uh, it stretches over the entirety of the 70-year exile, and it becomes a kind of symbol of the experience of Israel in exile. And we're given that, given a hint of that with that uh, framing of the, of the chapter, of chapter one. And then we have, um, after that introduction, we have a reference to the beginning of Daniel and his friends and their education in Babylonian literature. That education is finished toward the end of the chapter. We have a reference to the food that Daniel refuses, and a reference later on to the um, the fact that they're con- going to continue to not eat from the king's table. 
in verse uh, verses 14 and following, you have a reference to the test that uh, Daniel is given in the, the, to the completion of the test or the fear that the, uh, that the uh, uh, Ashpenaz, the, the head of these, the head of this educational, educational institution, uh, his fear that they're going to look bad before the king. And then that fear is relieved when they pass the test. And then in the center, you have this test that's proposed by Daniel. Just give us seeds. It's often translated as vegetables, but the word is seeds. Give us seeds and water for 10 days and test us and see if we aren't just as robust and healthy and fat as the rest of the uh, young men who are in this program. Uh, that's that's the food test that's at the center of the chapter. So you have kind of a, a, a kind of a chiastic layout for the entire chapter. And again, framed with these references to the kings that that uh, begin and end the exilic period. One thing we could look at briefly is the chronology of the first few verses. It seems to me that, um, well, Jehoiakim is taken away in the third year. Now, I mean, it's not said that he was accompanied with any people. I mean, I'm I'm inclined to think that between verses two and three, the text has sort of fast-forwarded to um, probably later on where the first big deportation of people um, from Judah did come. I, I don't know if that's a standard view of it in chronological terms or, or, not, or not. So you're saying that that would be the, the second invasion of Nebuchadnezzar. Are you putting it that far ahead or sometime in between the first and the second siege? Um, I'm, I think I'm putting, so there was an exile, I think, towards the end of Jehoiakim's reign, um, but he was carried away in the third year. And I'm I'm thinking that Daniel wasn't carried away along with him, but that, yeah, Daniel joined joined him there sometime later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that about whether that's a standard way of reading it. But the, And you're basing that on the fact that Jehoiakim is said to be taken away, given into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar and taken away. Uh, without any reference to others being taken with him, is that the that's the distinction you're making? And then others are taken in a later deportation. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when sort of Jeremiah lists various deportations, it feels like he's trying to give a fairly comprehensive view of them, and you know, a number of people who were taken away at different points in time. And I don't think any of them would have coincided with the third year of Jehoiakim. Mm. Presumably, the reference, most natural reference, would be to Second Kings chapter twenty-four. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. So it seems that there's an earlier um, event, and at that point, presumably, that's when the deportation of Daniel occurs. And then later on, in five ninety-eight BC, there's the um, the later invasion, and Jehoiakim dies sometime during that period. But Chronicles, I think, talks about him being taken in chains to be brought to Babylon. Right. I mean, I, I took that at the start of 2 Kings 24 to mean that he sort of served served the king for three years, um, then rebelled, and as a result, you know, in his third year he was taken away but uh, that could just be a wrong a wrong reading of it and what is how many years does Jehoiakim reign I don't remember what's the total um, 11 in total 
Yeah. Well, I wonder if the given the matching of three years, I wonder if uh, there's some play with the third year of Jehoiakim under the in, in kind of vassalage to Nebuchadnezzar, because uh, th- that's the period that it's talking about in Second Kings twenty four. Correct. It's yeah. the third. It's the third year after he has already become a vassal of Nebuchadnezzar. That's when Nebuchadnezzar comes up. Mm. Yeah. So I uh, wonder if the third year of Daniel one one is uh, perhaps not the third year of his total reign, but the third year of his vassalage. That would that would close the gap that uh, you're seeing between the two events, I suppose. Hmm. All right. In any case, we we have a reference here not to people coming up with Jehoiakim, but to vessels. Nebuchadnezzar is not only removing people from the land, but uh, he's taking the implements and the furnishings of the temple. Uh, and that happens in several different stages. By the end of Second Kings 25, you have a description of the the pieces, the large pieces of the temple that are being cut cut down in order to be transported over to Babylon. And there's a, there's a parallel running through these descriptions of exile between the people who are being deported and the vessels. It's kind of built into the whole temple system where the vessels and furnishings actually represent the gathered people who are devoted. They're they're the holy people devoted to the service of Yahweh. So the removal of the vessels and the removal of the people are, are parallel ideas. They happen together, at least generally they happen together. Uh, And um, uh, you can think about them interchangeably. So in one sense, the vessels being taken is, is a, as a representation of the, the Israelites, the people of Judah being taken, the people themselves are a kind of uh, holy vessel within Babylon. Now Uh, in the last episode, um, James described the, vessels that are placed in the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God as a kind of a depth charge uh, going to detonate at some point, uh, similar to the ark that's placed in the temple of Dagon back in 1 Samuel, and it's going to bring disaster. Ultimately, it's going to bring disaster on Babylon, because um, in spite of appearances, Yahweh has not been defeated. That's what this gesture would mean for Nebuchadnezzar. I can take the materials of this defeated God and put them in the house of my triumphant God. But in fact, Yahweh has not been defeated. He's been he's humbled himself and he's gone into exile along with Israel, with his vessels. Uh, but then he's going to rise up and triumph later in the book of Daniel. For immediate practical purposes, presumably the taking of these particular figures is to strip Judah of its power, its leading class. And later on, we'll see the artisans and the certain military men are taken away. So you just have this small rump of people who are also in a difficult position because there are these people who are held in captivity in Babylon of the royal family and other key groups of nobility. And if they don't comply with the Babylonians, these people will suffer their hostages in many respects. This must have been just a remarkable experience for the Hebrew exiles, mustn't it? I'm guessing that holidays weren't particularly common in those days and you wouldn't pop off to Syria or, or the, the like for like a few few weeks in the sun or, or something. I'm guessing that most of these people would have spent their lives in, in Judah and suddenly just transported, you know, hundreds of miles across the desert and, and so on into a completely new atmosphere and probably quite quite an exciting atmosphere. Here was one of the Babylon, the centre of commerce and 
trade and and music and, and all sorts of other um, things, some much less savoury than than others. I mean, talk, talk about being thrown in the deep end. This would have been a remarkable experience. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that we're introduced to these um, these characters uh, in verse six: Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Uh, these four young men. Uh, with some description of the general class to which they belong, the uh, sons of Israel uh, include the royal family, nobles, young men who are uh, without defect, good-looking, having intelligence, and so on. They're put into this program in order to train them for the civil service of Babylon. But we're given these uh, four names in verse 6 without any other description of their ancestry, without any genealogy given. We can surmise from what's said in verses three and four that they are members of the noble class. Perhaps even some of them are members of the, of the extended royal family of Judah, but they're without genealogy, without father and mother. It reminds me of the introduction of Elijah in the book of First Kings. He's called a Tishbite. The meaning of that term is disputed, but he's given no ancestry. He just kind of pops out of nowhere into the into the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, and he's doing uh, something new. He's, an, he's the Lord's new intervention into that situation with Ahab. And I think you have a similar kind of motif here. We don't know where Daniel comes from or, or the other three or, or his three friends. Uh, and it's partly because this past is being cut off. And there's kind of a new start for Israel in a new situation, as James was describing, this unprecedented situation of being in this foreign country. Uh, and... Um, Kind of all bets are off, and they're going to have to. Something new is going to have to happen. Forget the former things. The Lord is doing something new in Babylon with these three, uh, the, with these four young men. They are, however, of the tribe of Judah, right? Verse six. So, and then they're described in verse three at the end of verse three as the seed of the kingdom. The Zerah used there, interestingly, is also going to be the noun form of that or the verb form of that or one of the forms, can't remember which, I don't have my Hebrew Bible with me, he's going to be used later on when Daniel and his friends asked to have seeds. So this is a some sort of a, a new start here, a, a beginning, a planting of the royal family of the kingly line in, in Babylon. And there's, there's a lot of Genesis 3 themes here too. This uh, verse 4, without blemish, good appearance, it seems as if Nebuchadnezzar wants to take this forbidden fruit and use it uh, for his own designs. Um, And yet then there's another food test here and Daniel and his friends are going to pass that uh, and be elevated uh, and have the knowledge of good and evil to actually communicate to Nebuchadnezzar. So there's, there's a, uh, there is this idea that this is, this is like you said, Peter, it's a new start, a new beginning um, kind of, almost garden, Genesis 3, um, temptation kind of language used here. There's also the renaming, which is significant. There are a number of, a char- a number of characters elsewhere in Scripture that are named by Gentiles. And we can think maybe of Moses, who's named by um, the daughter of Pharaoh, or um, perhaps of Joseph, who receives a different name, um, is it Zathanath, Penea, or something? And then you have characters like Hadassah, or who's called Esther. It, it seems that these renamings of um, Daniel as Belteshazzar, 
Hannah, Michelle, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all of these are recalling these previous characters. Moses, who was raised in the house of Pharaoh, um, Joseph, who was raised up to this great authority under Pharaoh, and Esther as well, later on, who is a character who's operating in two different worlds again. And the relationship between these two worlds is a fraught issue in every single one of these stories. For Moses, is his loyalty going to be with his people, or is he going to act as one of the Egyptians? Um, for Joseph, is he going to be loyal to his new father, Pharaoh, who's doing all the things that her father would regularly do over his actual father, Jacob? And the key question is, is he going to go against his father Pharaoh's will by sending Jacob back to be buried in the land? Um, and then similar things with Esther's relationship with her people. And working between those two names, recognising that those new names that they receive have some force. They are operating as officials of this new empire, but yet those old names are never erased. They still have this faithful identity and negotiating between the two is a very important part of the story of the book more generally. Yeah. And it's interesting that there are variations in the way that they're designated, even within the first chapter after we're told that they're given these new names in verse seven. They're back to the old Hebrew names in verse 11. Uh, the Hebrew names are used again in verse 19. So the, those Hebrew identities are still there. And whenever Daniel identifies himself, later in the book, he's uh, identifying himself as Daniel. So yeah, the, you've, got those, you've got those two identities, but uh, in, in, different, in different kinds of contexts, in different, in different stories, in different, even within the same story, you have the na different names being given. Uh, uh, Jeff, I want to go back to your comment about verse 6. Um, I had taken Sons of Judah not to refer to the tribal identity or tribal association of the four young men, but rather to, I mean, they're, they're coming from Judah. That's the southern kingdom. Uh, but maybe, maybe, you're, uh, maybe you're right that they're, that should be taken with the traditional tribal meaning rather than referring to the kingdom. Well, I was connecting it with verse 3 um, right. and, and considering them to be part of the royal tribe, um, the sea yeah. tribe. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Alistair's point about these two worlds in which they live in, it's all through this chapter. So there's two names. There are uh, two houses here. And it's as if Nebuchadnezzar wants to adopt these men by giving them new names and making them part of his family, his house, uh, along with the treasures that he brings out of the house of God. He brings these personal treasures, these human treasures, and he wants to make them his own. And yet, as you noticed, Peter, there's going to be, you know, whose who's table are they going to eat at? Which What kind of table fellowship are they going to have? So there's like a house within a house. There's the house of Israel, uh, the house of Judah, within the larger uh, house of uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon or, or Babylon, uh, Persia, Greece, or Rome. And so all throughout this, this period, all, all the way up until, you know, 80, 70, there are uh, two houses, the larger house where the world emperor is, um, you know, is, is the chief, is the father, and the other houses where the other house, the house of Israel, that uh, maintains a faithful witness 
to the larger house. There seems to be an interesting dynamic going on in terms of the um, knowledge and understanding the way in which the uh, these men of Judah are trained up um, in the literature and language of the Chaldeans. I'm, I'm looking there at verse four. In insofar as this was presumably from the Babylonians' um, perspective, an attempt to, I guess, immerse them in immerse these Judeans in Babylonian culture and make them good uh, servants and good assets for Babylon. And it was in a sense, but at the same time, it would be what would undo Babylon. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was a large part of Daniel's success that he he had this wisdom and outperformed all of Babylon's um, wise men and kind of delivered the death blow on the night of Belshazzar's feast, in a sense. And it reminds me of um, when we went through Acts um, and Stephen gives his talk in Acts 7. He's very specific about the way in which Moses was trained up in the wisdom of Egypt and the way in which Joseph was made great by Egypt. And it seems that there is here a, um, a harnessing of these uh, Gentile powers for God's glory and in order to accomplish God's purpose. Mm -hmm. And the Babylonians don't know quite what they have on their hands, so they they think they can uh, they can co-opt uh, these uh, uh, these Hebrews, but they're not able to. I want to pick up on a a, a reference that Jeff made in verse four. Uh, these youths have no defect; they're good-looking, showing intelligence. And the "no defect" phrase particularly struck my struck my eye because that's that's uh, Levitical language. It's the language that's used to describe the physical perfection that's required of the Aaronic priests if they're going to serve at the table of the Lord and serve his bread in, in Leviticus 21. Uh, it's uh, the same language for a, a perfect a perfect sacrifice without without defect or without blemish. Uh, and it, it occurs to me that there's a, there's a kind of priestly dimension to what they're being trained for, not in the sense they're being trained for service in the house of a god, but they're being trained for service in the court of a king. So they're kind of uh, political priests uh, who are serving the great king. That's um, the, the uh, uh, priests are, are fundamentally, I've argued, uh, fundamentally uh, servants of a, of a royal house. Uh, that royal house can be the house of a, of, a, of a god, a temple, but it can also be a house of a king uh, like Nebuchadnezzar. And then I start thinking also that the, uh, Daniel seems to be moving uh, through the different stages that we that we like to talk about at Theopolis. We learned from Jim Jordan. Uh, they're initially trained to be in positions of service in the king's court, but very soon Daniel has a leading position, a dominating position in Babylon. Uh, with within chapter two, he's no longer subordinate, but he has a, he has this high position in the royal administration. Later on, of course, he's identified as a sage and a prophet and uh, actually described as uh, making prophecies and seeing visions later on in the book. So uh, within, within Daniel, we seem to have this, this progression that we often point to from a kind of priestly role in service to the king, elevated through that faithful service to, uh, to become a ruler. Uh, and then, especially in his old age, he's in a position to offer sage advice as a as a as an elder prophet to the kings something that um james noted in our previous study of the book is the importance of the laws and the other things that are challenging the place 
of the Jews in this situation. And much of this recalls for me the um, challenge that Haman has in the book of Esther, chapter 3, um, verse 8 following. There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. And it seems that for the Jews at this point, if your kingdom has been wiped out, if members of your royal house have been deported and are now hostages being um, enculturated in the way of the great empire, the idea that you continue your ways within that context just seems to defeat the entire purpose. It's like the cartoon character that has run off the edge of the cliff and is just running in midair and not falling. Um, there's something inappropriate about this. And yet that's what's happening in these situations, that even in this situation where everything has been wiped out, there's still the continuation of a distinct identity that's marked out. And here also, if you don't have the land, if you don't have the temple, if you don't have all these other outward trappings, what gives you distinctive identity? It's faithfulness to the word of the Lord. It's the law, particularly, that comes to the foreground at this point. And that faithfulness will, um, when everything else is removed, you can't have the talisman of the temple that you can rest, that you can rest upon as they did in Jeremiah chapter 7. You can't depend upon the possession of the land, all these other things that Israel could almost treat in an idolatrous way. Now they are forced to maintain their distinctiveness through faithfulness. And it seems that's very much a continuing theme within the book mm -hmm. of Daniel that's first introduced very strongly within this chapter. Mm -hmm. And what they do is fascinating because it's it's not what we would expect to read, I think, from verse 8 onward, that somehow they were being asked to violate some law of God or to uh, – that'll, that'll come later. But here, um, Daniel himself uh, sets in his heart um, after being after being given set names by uh, – by Nebuchadnezzar in verse 7, Daniel sets in his heart that he would not defile himself as the language used here in my ESV Bible. But it's not the word for unclean. Um, and I think, I don't, I don't have it here with me, I think Jim translates this estrange. Um, he resolved that he would not estrange himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And so it's not really a matter of clean and unclean. It's not like I don't it doesn't appear like they're being fed, you know, crawfish from the river Euphrates and they're not going to eat that. Um, but rather it's they're they're separating themselves um, and eating these seeds or these um, vegetables um, in order to maintain this bond between themselves in order to set themselves apart. Uh, and not, not just, you know, get smudged into the flow of Babylonian culture, um, and and this is and this is a very, again, it's it's a I think it's a, an act of wisdom. It's not so much an act of obedience to the law at this point. Is that Daniel's figuring out that at this point, this is what they need to do, 
in order to maintain integrity, to maintain their own table fellowship and not get mingled in with the table fellowship of this new house. And um, I think that's surprising to us because I think we might have thought that there was going to be some initial uh, call to violate some law of God, but that's not what happens here. I don't yeah. think, unless you guys disagree. Well, I mean, I'm not entirely sure what, what it means. I mean, I know the same term is used when in Malachi it talks about um, polluted food and um, people who offer polluted food on my altar. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't necessarily mean estranged or or, or something, but I think it can mean pollution. Um, I mean, ultimately, it's 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 not stated, is it? I mean, I think you're probably right. Legal things don't seem directly to be in mind. Um, I find it interesting that Daniel resolves that he's not going to do this. And it feels like that's the line he's drawn in the sand for whatever reason. And then he decides, well, how, how is this now going to work? And so he approaches the chief and puts this proposal to him that he would, um, uh, you know, allow them to undergo a test for 10 days. And he gets what I see as a, a surprising amount of cooperation um, from this guy, the chief of the eunuchs. I mean, it, it obviously, it's God ordained. It says, doesn't it, in verse 9, that God gave Daniel um, favour in, in the eyes of this guy who's got to make the decisions. But it wouldn't seem that the guy's got anything to gain from that particularly. Mm. Um, but God has overseen all this, and he, he's allowed Daniel to sort of do this test. And um, it... it it seems to me at least that it's possible to um, read the close of that section that Daniel um, took away their food in verse 16. Um, seems possible to me to read the, the there um, in verse 16 as a reference to all the youths who ate the king's food. Um, and so not just Daniel and his three friends who have undergone this undergone this specific diet um but all the youths who ate the king food the, the steward then took that away and put let's say all the judean exiles on this better diet and um if, if that's right i mean it seems grammatically possible at least then you've got this same theme here that turns up elsewhere which is that through daniel's um obedience it's not just him or even his immediate circle who benefits there, there's a, a he wins a victory for all the Judeans there in, in exile. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the reasons for thinking it, it uh, may not be uh, questions of uh, impure food, unclean food, is the alternative diet that Daniel proposes. I mean, if he was just trying to avoid unclean meat, he could have proposed something, uh, something other than what he does, which is seeds and water. And I, you could, I guess you could say that uh, the, the meat of the king's table would not have been slaughtered properly there would have been blood in it and so daniel can't eat the meat with the blood but still uh, the alternative to eating meat is not simply eating seeds unless that's uh, taken maybe seeds are to be taken as grain products in which is kind of a bread and water diet rather than you know eating a mint and dill and cumin which would not be much of a diet so uh, maybe it's a bread and water thing which would uh, fit with the idea that this is a avoidance of defilement Perhaps the concern is to avoid foods that would be um, offered to idols in any way. And so the seeds in the water would be 
those foods that would not be um, used in such a manner so they can be absolutely certain that they're they're not defiled yeah possibly now i think that I, the it occurs to me that the priestly dimensions that i mentioned earlier might have something might contribute something to this i, it, I this isn't all worked out in my head the priests serve as stand before the great king that's what uh, daniel and his friends are doing they're being trained so they can stand before the king that's the phrase at the end of verse five um, as those who stand before Yahweh, the, the Aaronic priests share in Yahweh's table. They receive uh, his food and have communion with him. Uh, so the refusal to receive the king's food seems to be a refusal to have that, that table communion with, uh, with Nebuchadnezzar, with the king. They're not, they're not receiving the crumbs that fall from Nebuchadnezzar's altar, as it were. And so you have this, uh, the, the line that they're drawing is between uh, the king, the king's table, and his circle of table companions, uh, and them—you know, kind of what Jeff said earlier about uh, kind of a double house with two two different tables operating here. What do we make about the relationship between Daniel and his three companions? Because here it seems that Daniel is the one who initiates all of this, but the three companions are the ones that are bound up with him. They're the ones that are tested over against presumably all the others who are eating different foods. And then later on in chapter two, Daniel um, consults with these three friends and asks them to pray for him. Later on, still later on, there is the, um, the golden image and Daniel is elsewhere from his three friends and the three friends prove faithful in that test. What are we to make about the relationship between Daniel and his friends, because they do seem to operate distinctively from each other, distinctly from each other, but there seems to be something about the four of them that stands for something greater than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. Alistair, do you think this is um, a symbolic reference to this, to the house, to the four corners that Daniel being the chief cornerstone and he has three other cornerstones and, um, I mean, with, with Jesus and his apostles, um, David and his mighty men, uh, here we have Daniel and his three friends being, you know, the cornerstones of this new house within the greater house of Nebuchadnezzar. I think that would certainly be a very promising approach. Um, I remember James Jordan suggesting that. You can also, a further example of that would be Job and his three friends, Mm -hmm. who seems to be more than just um, his pals or drinking buddies. They are, they are his right-hand men within his reign. He is mm -hmm. a king among the people. Yeah, in all of those examples that Jeff listed, you have, um, as Jeff said, a, a chief cornerstone, one who is uh, setting, the, setting the pattern, the agenda, and setting the, uh, the dimensions, as it were, the, the uh, corners for the rest of them. Uh, so Jesus and his three main apostles, David and his three main mighty men, but Jesus and David are clearly the dominant ones. And uh, it seems like you have something similar here with Daniel taking the lead and his determination not to defile himself is picked up by the others. That's interesting. And there is a progression there that it starts off with Daniel acting on behalf of all of them. Then it's Daniel acting for himself, but asking the others to support him in prayer. And then it's the others acting by themselves. Mm -hmm. 
And interestingly, in chapter three, when the three friends are left on their own, the sort of climax, the pivotal moment is when they look into the fire and, and see a fourth figure um, in the midst um, of them. So you've, you've got that number four uh, being significant there. It occurs to me that we might be able to spin out some, uh, some pastoral applications of this. I mean, we've been talking about the, the line that Daniel draws as a line having to do with table fellowship and what he's, the effect, if not the specific intention, the effect is that he's not sharing the food of the king. Uh, and that's a that's an interesting position to take in a position of weakness and exile, particularly when you have the opportunity to have a place at the table, as it were, and it's refused. And I think the that's a that should be a, a, a caution. I'm using place at the table there. Obviously, is a broader sense than just uh, actually eating with someone. But I mean, I think that Christians feeling beleaguered, Christians feeling marginalized, uh, our instinct is to uh, seek, demand, lobby for, jockey for a place at the table so that we can get in those position of positions of uh, influence. Uh, Daniel's doing the opposite in a sense. He's he's carving out a separate table. Uh, that's his first step. Later, he's going to be elevated, but it depends on that first step of faithfulness uh, that he's uh, dis- is distinguishing himself. So the the maintaining that distinction is uh, kind of a prior act to any effort to uh, gain influence and Daniel, you know, doesn't try to really try to gain influence. He's, he's thrown into a position where he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream in order to protect himself and his friends from, uh, from uh, execution. But it's the, it's, it's drawing that boundary. That's the first step of faithfulness rather than grasping for something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I've used this chapter in a couple of talks to college students before in Christian campuses because, and what I've talked about is exactly what you said, um, where you draw the line uh, may depend on your situation. But if you're in a hostile environment and an idolatrous environment uh, and one that's demanding your loyalty, you should, uh, with other believers, maintain some sort of distance, not in arrogance or in pride or in self-righteous judgment, but in order to encourage one another, in order to um, maintain your integrity and your name and your identity um, and, and not be sucked into the larger swirl of idolatrous, ungodly culture and social practices that are surrounding you, um, and, 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 just, and just be faithful. And it, it, it may mean it may mean something simple, like, you know, you you gather at a table in the cafeteria with other believers and you um, encourage one another and you pray uh, and you do that, you know, maybe at dinner time or at lunch or something. But in, anything like that where you're able to uh, separate, not separatism and not, not some kind of full-blown separatistic kind of uh, idea that, you know, was common in uh, 20th century America uh, when people separated from all contact with uh, ungodly people, you know, don't go to bars, don't go to dances and that kind of thing. But some sort of separation that allows you and enables you to maintain your identity. And and then you wait. You just wait for God. As you said, Peter, you wait for God to give you situations where you can speak faithfully into um, 
whatever situation you're put. I think there's something to be said for the fact that Daniel creates a situation whereby basically the um, the steward allowing him to go on this diet can be of mutual benefit. So Daniel gets what he wants in terms of not defiling himself before the Lord, but the steward the steward gets better um, and more healthy people. And so rather than like, yeah, this uh, just this objection to what he's being required to do, he creates this situation where there's there's a mutual benefit for both him and the person in authority over him. And that feels to me like a, a good um, good example of interaction with, with authority. Oh, I know I'm talking too much, but I'll give you another example of this. In fact, we talked about it last night at our elders meeting, in our session meeting, and that is there are a number of uh, smaller Christian educational institutions that, whether they're high schools, but particularly a couple of small colleges that are largely classical Christian education. And basically what they're doing is putting out a single product, uh, a, a student with a degree in liberal arts. And yet what, what we're hearing from them and from others is that these kinds of men and women are very desirable to uh, corporations, to companies, to educational institutions. They're actually being favored over others who graduate from more prestigious universities because they have a knowledge, they have a, a, a solid character uh, that is very attractive to people. And I think that's been going on for a long time. And you could probably report on that, Peter, with NSA. I know Hillsdale experiences that all the time. But now these other, a lot of these other even smaller educational institutions are discovering the same thing. It's exactly what James is talking about. There's a mutual benefit. It's a win-win. It's not a zero-sum game for anybody. And the Lord elevates these men and women uh, and gives them places of authority. Yeah. One of the things that the Lord promises to his people in Deuteronomy is that the law um, will be their wisdom in the eyes of the nations. And throughout the interactions between the Jews and the other nations, it is their faithfulness and their wisdom that really makes them stand out. We can think about the story of Joseph, Joseph's power in interpreting dreams, um, Joseph's wisdom and shrewdness in various situations. And here we have something similar. We see the same thing in the story of Moses, who was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, but he can achieve more than the Egyptians because of his faithfulness to the law. See a similar thing in the case of Solomon, who meditates upon the law of God, who gains the wisdom of the law of God, and all the nations round about come to learn from his wisdom. That is a movement in towards the land when the king is expressing this, but now there's a movement out and wisdom going to these foreign courts and the Jews through their commitment to the law of God and through the insight that they're given through faithfulness, they are able to prove themselves to be more effective in those tasks of wisdom that are desired by high officials within these, um, within these courts far better they can do these things far better than the people who have been trained in the ways of those nations themselves and through that we're seeing something of the way in which the law of god is the truest source of wisdom and it can stand out from the wisdom of the nations 
a couple thoughts that follow up on things that uh, you all have mentioned. Uh, one one uh, thing I don't believe we mentioned in verse eight, uh, we've been talking about food in general, but the, the what Daniel and his friends refuse is choice food and wine, which uh, I, again, I go back to my point about the priestly dimensions of this passage that uh, that's a that's a restriction on priests in the sanctuary. They they don't drink wine. Kings drink wine, and so this uh, that might fit with a with a, a kind of temporary restriction. Daniel's carving out this space. Uh, later on, when he talks about fasting, he talks about refusing wine, which suggests that at some point he started drinking wine again. So it uh, again maybe this kind of apprenticeship, this this uh, position of being uh, subordinate, this kind of priestly position that's uh, significant. And also, when I just I'm just summarizing what James said, but I think that both sides of it are are crucial. James, earlier in our discussion, you said that uh, Daniel had favor; the Lord gave him favor with his officials. So he's already trusted, and he's given this uh, ability to speak to this official and to persuade him. So that means that there's already he's already developed a reputation as somebody who can be trusted. And then I think you're right that on top of that, he makes a suggestion that there's really no, there's no way that the official can really lose because if the if Daniel and his friends turn out to look worse than the other young men, then the experiment will stop. So there's a there's a uh, there's a comparatively low risk for the official. So both sides of that I think are crucial for uh, you know examples for how you negotiate within a within a court within a within a a court culture that's contrary to uh, God's word and how you are faithful there, serving serving the serving the king and serving his interests, but at the same time uh, maintaining that proper kind of distance from uh, and proper kind of uh, distinct identity. It's good to know we have a precedent for A/B testing as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, the 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 experiment uh, is successful. It's a, a triumph for the Jews, the triumph of these sons of Judah who have gone into exile. They've been defeated. Their king has been defeated by uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, and so the chapter begins with this conquest and capture. Uh, but then, uh, once captured, you uh, put these young men in this situation, and they uh, are better than anybody else. Not only fatter, which is a, a really good thing; they're fatter than all the other youths, uh, but they're also more intelligent. They're more competent. They they have uh, received the training well. They're able to serve the king better than anyone else. Uh, and be, besides that, Daniel has this special ability from God to understand visions and dreams and to receive visions and dreams. So there's a, a kind of reversal that takes place, although it's not as dramatic as what's going to happen later on uh, with Belshazzar. Uh, you already have uh, that that um, depth charge already beginning to rumble a little bit uh, with uh, uh, Daniel and his friends being able to uh, get this uh, win the trust of the king and, and be put in these positions of uh, of authority. Yeah, notice in the end too, in verse nineteen, when they're recognized as being uh, <clears throat> as the, uh, uh, their their uh, experiment was successful and they're recognized by the king, their Hebrew names are used, mm-hmm. not their not their Babylonian names. Right. Mm. Yeah, you wonder if the phrase there, therefore they stood before the king has to do not just with their position, i.e. they're ministering before him, but, you know, they they stood. They stood on their own two feet and they passed the test and, and t- didn't succumb to what they could have. And you then get this significant um, chronological note at the very end in verse 
21. Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus, which seems significant to me. I mean, we know Daniel lasted longer than that. He he was alive in the third year of Cyrus at the very end of the book. But the first year is, I guess, the time when Babylon fell and when God's promise to return the exiled people began to be fulfilled. And so I get the sense here that Daniel kind of, in verse 20, outperformed all the people. And in verse 21, he outlasted them. You know, when Nebuchadnezzar and his sons and Belshazzar and all the rest of them had been and gone, um, Daniel was still standing and still serving in the palace because he sunk deep and sound foundations. And I think it's very easy to get into the manner of thinking when you think, well, I will be faithful to God in the big things, but I'll, I'll cut myself a bit of slack on the things that are less important. But Daniel, I guess per Jesus' parable, he was faithful in, in little, and that was formative, that was causative. He ended up being faithful in a lot. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.